protection would be on them and that you would open their hearts to see their need of the gospel at a very young age. Bless them even as they listen to your word and may it find good soil in their young hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We five? All right. Go see mom. Go see mom. <laughs> it must be their father. That's all I can say. <laughs> that little guy looks just like his daddy. All right, don't forget our DLT groups, Tuesday and Wednesday here. Well, we had a good one this last week in the sense of the discussion was great. And uh, Ben and Sam, where is Sam? You've got to come start this in a minute. It is, okay. Uh, ben and Sam brought several of their buddies with them and, and their appetites. And for the first time in the history of our DLT, they're literally, Angie made grits and cheese. There wasn't a grit singular left. I mean, those pans were clean. We could have just put them away. Those boys ate everything but the aluminum foil. <laughs> and uh, so we, we, we cleaned the house. But we had a great discussion over one of the best sermons I've ever heard Jay Lordson preach last week. My goodness. Um, that is, has been posted on the Lake Wildwood Facebook and also, it's, if you're signed up to receive those sermons, you should have gotten a notice on that. Uh, excellent sermon. And we'll certainly be missing them as they're serving in Perry this morning. All right, next one. Don't forget our D groups. We're talking about apologetics right now, and that's going pretty well. And uh, it's very interesting to discuss how we defend the Christian faith. Right now, we're in this, on the subject of... Uh, Good and evil. How do, we, how do we have God and evil? And it's, it comes from Epicurus, who was a Greek philosopher. Epicurus came up with a concept or this idea, or this construct um, that says if, if God is good, then he cannot be all-powerful because there's such a thing as evil. And if God is all-powerful, then he can't be all-good because there's such a thing as evil. So we're talking about how do we give a defense of that according to the Scripture. We had a really wonderful discussion today. So I encourage you to come and join us. We have some good coffee, thanks to Sam, uh, who makes our coffee for us in our, in our group in the morning. You come and join us. We get started right at 10. We fellowship for a little bit and then get started. All right. To the Word. Don't forget, we're still reading through the Bible. You can pick up in the back or on the Bible app and join us. To continue to read through God's Word every single day. All right, Tom, come up here and tell us a little bit about what this, what you're doing with this debt-free seminar and living debt-free. I love this idea that Tom has, and I want us all to be a part of it. All right, good morning. Morning. Um, <clears throat> so, debt-free seminar is just exactly what it what it says. If um, if you've got debt in your life. Um, Contrary to what a lot of people think, debt is not a sin, debt is not evil necessarily, but it's crazy to carry it around. It's crazy to pay 30 years on a house or seven years on a car or whatever it is when you can pay it off a lot faster. Just very simple concept that I, uh, we'll be sharing on um, January 30th, which is mo a Monday night, 7 o'clock here at the church. Um, what I would do if I was you in the meantime is I would write down all my debts, just make a list of your debts with the balances and the payment. Nobody else is going to see it. It's just for you. I was going to give it to you with the addresses. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be paying a long time. Um, and, um, and what we'll do, what we're going to do is come up with a plan 
of how to take those debts in the best order and in the best way and just get them knocked out as fast as you can knock them out. And usually, if you follow this plan to a T, believe it or not, you can get all your basic consumer debt as well as your home paid off in about seven to eight years, which is like phenomenal. You know how much interest you're saving with that? It's, you can't wow. even, wow. you know. So anyway, like I said, it's just a simple little plan. We're gonna go over it and show you exactly how it works. Um, and um, I think it'll bless you. Sure. And that's it. So it's January 30th, Monday night, 7 p.m. here at the church. So uh, Tom, would this be a good thing to invite some friends to? You're right on top of it. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Anybody you know, you work yeah. with, friends, family, whatever, that's carrying some debt. And it doesn't even be like, not necessarily drowning in debt, right. but just everybody's got some debt. Um, and figure out a way to, to get it paid off quick. And, and, and the thing I love about it, I was in debt so bad at one time that when I got my paycheck, I didn't get to keep any of it. Wow. Every single bit of it went out to wow. pay between bills and debts. I didn't even get to buy myself a stick of chewing gum. It was so bad. You, t you go from that, we're not quite debt free, but we're getting there. Um, and, you know, everybody can benefit from this. So, so if you, you know, avail yourself of it. What a great, I, and I'm so thankful that for, for people like Tom that, first of all, understand the principles, and then secondly, are willing to, to share it with us. And I also want to say, our young people sitting out here, I see my son Sam in the back, he's getting ready to launch into his life. I'm telling you, I, anybody else with me wish that you had that understanding when you were 18? Oh man, I wouldn't need to go to Tom's class if I had that understanding when I was 18, so I wouldn't be where I am now, right? Um, and, I have, and I have been convicted in, in, in the last couple of years, Tom, about getting, the only thing I really owe on is my house. I wanna get out from underneath that. Did you know that, that the word mortgage, the root word, is the Latin for death. It is literally mortgage means death note. And I think Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the full. Amen. So Tom's going to show us how to do that. I am. I was just so excited when he shared that with me. And I was like, let's do it. So uh, if uh, we want to get a flyer made up so you can pass that out maybe. And we're going to share it on Facebook. Just You all invite people. Let's, let's get a full house and uh, learn how to live debt-free. Amen? Amen. All right, take your Bibles this morning and make your way to Genesis 32. Anyone know what Genesis means? Beginning. Yep. It literally means beginning. And I guess that's good that it begins the Bible. I want to talk to you today about limping home. Limping home. Martin Lloyd-Jones a man to whom we are all indebted because of his wonderful mind and intellect that he used to the glory of God. As a physician in England, could have had a very comfortable life. And instead, he felt the call of God to the ministry and put that wonderful mind to use for the declaration of the gospel. Lloyd-Jones said this, he said, the worst thing that can happen to a man is for him to succeed before he's ready. Right? Now I see some gray-headed people out there today shaking their heads saying, mm-hmm. 
How is it that we know that, us older folks? Because we used to not have gray hair. Right? We used to be the Blakes of this world and this congregation and the Sams, right? But now our hair is graying and we've learned a couple of things. Today I want to walk you through what I think is the penultimate chapter in Jacob's life. Jacob has been living down to his name. His name, Jacob, means manipulator, deceiver, trickster. And he's been living down to that name his whole life. But when the sun goes down, his name is Jacob. When the sun goes up, his name is going to be Israel. At 8 p.m., he is the cheater. By 6 a.m., he is the man who wrestled with God. He is called a prince. Before that night, Jacob was in excellent, excellent physical condition. Ever after, he would walk with a limp. To give you a little bit of the setting of what's happened here, and you know Jacob's story, or I'm assuming you have some familiarity. He has had to leave home quickly due to the threat of his brother who made a promise that he would kill Jacob as soon as dad died. Well, mom sends him to go live with her brother, Uncle Laban. For the past 20 years, Jacob's been laboring under Laban. And he has endured a series of promises that have been made and broken. Wages that were set and then changed. It was as if Jacob was living with himself for the past 20 years. Because he met his match in old Uncle Laban, who was himself a master manipulator. And he barely gets out with his life. Fascinating history. And even as they're leaving, Laban chases them down. And it could have gotten bloody. And then they have that thing that always made me laugh. Back in the 80s and 90s, it was popular for boyfriends and girlfriends to give each other a, a little half of a pendant. Linda shaking her head. Do you remember this, Linda? Mizpah? The Lord watched between you and me while we were apart one from another. That has nothing to do with romance or even nice feelings. That is a treaty that says, if you cross this line, I'm going to kill you. And I always thought it was so funny that boyfriends and girlfriends would give that to each other, wholly ignorant of the context of history in the Bible. <laughs> so he barely gets out. He's, he barely gets out of Haran with his family, his finances, and his life. And now, with Laban over his shoulder, he has Esau in the windshield. And he's got to figure out how how to get past his brother. Just the name Esau made his blood turn cold, and well it should. Because Esau hated Jacob. And when Jacob left, he had nothing but the clothes on his back. But as he returns, he's got so much more to lose. He's got wives, sons, servants, and so many flocks, it's hard to number them. For 20 years, 
he's dreamed of going home. But every time his dream turned into a nightmare when he thinks of Esau. You ever been stuck like that? While he was with Laban, his mind was distracted with his slippery, conniving uncle, and he, he was kept rather busy. But Laban is history, a receding figure in the rearview mirror. Laban is gone, and with his departure, Esau returns to the forefront. He left that area of his home a poor and broken man, but he returns as a man of means. And as he returns with all of his well, <laughs> it is literally his father Isaac's blessing personified. And he has to meet his brother with his father's blessing of flocks, herds, and family. And the last thing that brother said is, I'm going to kill you if it's the last thing that I do. We can even see in chapter 32... And verse 6, again, Jacob always planning everything out, the master manipulator, figuring out how am I going to get around this situation. He sends a recon team out of his servants. And they just go to see if they can get a feel for what Esau is thinking. You ever been nervous about something you know is coming and you just have no idea? If this thing goes south, it's going to be really bad. And, and, and that just dominates your thinking. Is anybody there? Can you relate to this? Okay, good. So it's not just me. So that's what Esau's feeling, or Jacob's feeling. So he sends out these messengers, and they come back. And imagine that wait was not fun. Verse 6, then the messengers returned to Jacob and said, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you. So far, so good. Uh, except for the rest of it. And 400 men are with him. <laughs> I don't think this is the welcoming uh, party that Jacob was hoping for. I don't think those men are coming to slap them on the back, but rather to probably put a sword in their heart. So he knows he's in trouble. Write this down on your outline. Just write down. Just write somewhere on your outline, unfinished business. How many, how many of us have some unfinished business. Matter of fact, if you know what it is, write it down on there. I got something that's been hanging over me for two years I got to fix. It's just something I've let go and I got to get on it. Because sooner or later we have to deal with it. We got to face it. He prepares for the worst. He's hoping for the best, but he's preparing for the worst. If nothing else, this manipulator is a pragmatist. He prepares for casualties. And how he prepares is a little bit telling about what his priorities are. He puts his least favorite sons in the front. I'm not kidding. You can't make this up. And the ones he loves the most are at the very rear. His favorite wife and the two sons they have together are in the back. I'm sure there's no problems in that family around dinner. And that's it. The master manipulator has reasoned to the best of his twisted nature. And he knows, he knows at the core of his being, he's not able to think or manipulate himself out of this situation. The morning will determine the rest of his life.
and he is not confident. You ever been there? Have you ever dreaded the sun coming up? So he sends his family over the river. And now he is finally and fully alone. And that's not good when you're a haunted and hunted man. In the solitude, he eventually runs into God. And now, Jacob, you will have to begin, number one, facing your fear. Number one, facing your fear. Look in chapter 32, verse 22 and 23, and let's read that together. Verse 22 says, And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants and eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. And now Jacob is completely alone. For the first time in a while. Matter of fact, it's been 20 years since God met with him in a very personal way. And by the way, that was while he was running for his life from Esau, headed to Laban. And there in a place that he would come to name Bethel, the house of God, with a stone for a pillow, God shows up and makes a few promises to this trickster, or this deceiver. And in the solitude of that night, he encounters God. And now he's running, instead of to Laban, he's running from Laban, but he's running right into Esau. And his greatest fear is being realized, and that is being alone. Being alone. When you got unfinished business, you can't stand a thought of being alone with your thoughts. Jacob had some serious unfinished business. And now he's pushed everybody across the river. He's, he's crossed himself back over the river, and it's just Jacob. And it's just him and God. And his greatest fear is being alone. His greatest fear is that which he has worked so hard for and has come to love so much, namely his family, is going to be taken from him tomorrow, possibly even his own life. And he can't bear the thought of it. Have you ever been so panicked you just want to run? You ever felt like that? I've felt like that on occasions. Just so full of anxiety. You, don't, you can't stand the being in your own skin. This is, this is Jacob. I can hear the crickets and the brook. And here he is, facing his greatest fear of being alone, losing his family. Now he's got people, possessions, and power, but he's also got one enraged Esau to ruin it all. And old Jacob has manipulated himself right into a corner. And he's all alone. He hadn't slowed down for 20 years. Old Laban kept him on his feet. And he's been, he has been working hard and trying to outmaneuver, outdeceive, and outmanipulate his uncle. He's done a pretty good job. 
But he's manipulated himself into a corner he can't find his way out of. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to that frenetic pace running from your own inner voice? Because you know if you slow down long enough, you're going to hear things that you're, you've been running in order to not hear. Am I making sense to anybody this morning? I thought so. Do you fear that in that solitude that God himself might show up in your thoughts? I've had seasons like that. Like, man, if I slow down long enough, God might show up, and I'm not ready for what he's got to say. A lot, much of Jacob's life to this point has been about wrestling. He wrestled with his brother for a birthright and a blessing. He wrestled with his uncle Laban for his family and his wealth. And here he's getting ready to wrestle with God for a blessing much greater than the blessing he stole from his brother. Jacob's life has always been a life of struggle. Can anybody relate to that? <laughs> and in verses 22 to 23, this scene opens, and Jacob has with him only what he had when he first left home. He had no family, no flocks, no service, no nothing. And now Jacob finds himself right back where he started 20 years ago, all alone with nothing but his thoughts. He sends over everything he has, all of his wealth, which had been the pursuit of his life for the past 20 years, and now it all seems very insignificant in the unsurety of the moment. Number two, I want you to say, see this, fearing his face. Fearing his face. First he faced his fear of being alone. Now he fears the face of the one he wrestles with. Look at verse 24. Then Jacob was left, what's that word, church? Alone. And a man, notice in my, in my Bible, man is capitalized. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he, this man, touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. The last thing Jacob wanted to do was be alone for this greatest fear. And all of a sudden, somebody shows up. He's not alone, but the guy attacks him. Literally, that's, how we, that's the import of what we see. Jacob didn't start the wrestling match. The man did. And I don't think Jacob knows who it is. I really don't. But how many of you have ever been so full of angst that any opportunity... To get some of that out is worth it. You'll, you'll take it. So somehow they meet up and they start to fight. Now I don't think it was a fist fight. The Bible says it was a wrestling match. And they were, they were pushing up against each other. The Bible says they fought all night long. That's a long fight. I read recently about a, back in the day, a professional boxing match that went 113 rounds. I'm like, how in the world was anybody could pick their arms up after 113 rounds? This is all-nighter, folks. And Jacob wrestles with this person all night long. He sent over everything he had, and now he runs into this person. No explanation is given for the attack of the man on Jacob. We're going to find out in a minute who it is. It's not just a man, is it? It's not just, as Isaiah says, an angel, but it's what's called an angel of the Lord, and the Old Testament is called a theophany. Um, it it is, is God taking on physical form. 
And the thinly veiled mystery of the identity of this man is finally resolved in verse 30. And we don't really know if Jacob knew who it was with whom he wrestled all night long. We, we don't really know that until the... But we see at the end he figures it out. Now, a lot has been made, and I think it's poor preaching, and I'm going to try not to do it, of taking this wrestling with God and making it us wrestling with God. All I can say is sometimes you and God got to figure it out together. Right? So I don't want to make more of this than what's there. But I do know that Jacob fought with this guy, and I don't know if he was just getting all of his angst out or what it was, but I know that Jacob wasn't about to quit. So much so that the man, the Bible says, touched his hip. I think it was more than a touch to make your hip pop out of joint. And what amazes me in this text <laughs> is that he keeps on fighting. Even a dislocated hip, with a dislocated hip, Jacob's, Jacob's still fighting. That had to hurt, excruciating pain, and he's still, he's still wrestling. Now we see the next one, which is fixating on favor. Look at verse 26. And he said, and that he there is uh, the man he's wrestling with, let me go for the day breaks. By the way, this was, that was not good news for Jacob. This was the day he had not looked forward to for the last 20 years. But he said, Jacob, I will not let you go. What's it say, church? Unless you bless me. Now, again, I don't know if Jacob knows who he's dealing with here yet. But he's asking for the blessing. I need all the help I can get. But you're a pretty good opponent. Maybe you'll join me, but someway I want you to bless me. Look what the scriptures say. Verse 27. So he, that's the man he's wrestling with, said to him, what does he say to him? He asks him a question. What is it? What is your name? Right? And he says what? What does Jacob mean? It means deceiver. Manipulator. Literally, it means heel grabber because he was hanging on to the heel of his brother as his brother was born first. You're the one who trips people up. And I do think there's a message in there for us. The path to God's blessing is coming clean with who you are. In my mind, I picture it this way. They're fighting around. The guy says, let me go. It's getting light. Jacob says, not on your life, man. I'm hanging on to you until you bless me. And I think you can imagine him fighting. Jacob's in pain. And he says, all right, what's your name? And I think at that moment, Jacob stops fighting. He said, I'm Jacob. I'm a deceiver. I'm a master manipulator. Jacob's had to get real with who he was. What's your name? What's your name today? What are you known for?
I think the fight was over at that point. Look at verse 28. Once, I think that's repentance right there. <laughs> Once he repents and he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob will no longer be known by the dubious nature of his earlier life, the trickery, the deception, the manipulation, but by his wrestling with God. But Jacob's new name cannot be separated from his limp. We're going to see that in just a minute. Israel literally means prince, prince with God. Then Jacob turns the tables a little bit, and Jacob says, tell me your name, I pray. I told you my name, who are you? Because now Jacob's, I think it's starting to dawn on Jacob, this isn't just a guy, and this isn't just an angel either. I got, this, is, this is someone different. What is your name? The request to know the name of the man is Jacob's attempt to learn his identity. And God gives him a new name. And it's interesting, there's some, in the older versions, the ancient versions of this word, this name Israel, it's translated as one who prevails with God. But literally it means the opposite. I found this fascinating. It literally means in the older versions of ancient Hebrew, it means God who prevails with man. It means not that Jacob struggled with God and won. Listen, but that God struggled with Jacob and God won. Literally, he's saying, I bested you. I won. And you, listen, you need God to win. How many of you know today that what you and I need more than anything with our unfinished business is we need God to win. And we need it bad. We, we so desperately need God to win in us, through us, and over us. The answer of this opponent, why is it that you ask about my name? That's an that's a old Hebrew way of saying you know who I am. <laughs> you now know who I am. And look what it says, beautiful. And he, God, blessed him there. That blessing started with Jacob admitting who he was and Jacob coming to understand who God was. See, that's the back half of the blessing. And here's the problem. Can I just be honest with you all this morning? I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you the truth. I fear that sometimes I want the blessing of God without God himself. We, I, I fear that I seek God's hand more than I seek his face. I want what God can offer more than I want God himself. Um, I listened to Paul Washer's sermon recently, and he said this, and it was like a slap in the face. He said, every, everybody wants to get to heaven. They just don't want God to be there when they do. And I love later on in this history... When God and Moses are having a bit of a debate, God is fed up with his people. 
And God said, and they're going back, well, I'm going to destroy them all. God said, Moses, please, God, you can't do that. Your name's attached to them. What are, the, what are your enemies going to say about your character? God said, all right, I'll tell you what we'll do now. They are so wicked and sinful and evil people. I'll just let you all go in to promise. Okay, I'll, I'll give you the promised land, but I'm not going with you. You know what Moses says? Kill us here. Just wipe us all out because the land is not what we want. We want you. I'm afraid that most of us would have shake, just reached our hand out, shook God's hand and said, deal, we'll go in without you. Because what we really want is your blessing, not you. Look what Jacob does in verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. That's something. More literally, that Hebrew phrase penile literally means facing God. <laughs> Jacob says, I faced God. I owned up to who I was. And I came out somebody different. And God has preserved my life. God's preserved my life. Now the whole concept there, the idea there is, is twofold. First of all, because Jacob understands, no man can see God in what, church? Live. But I also think that was prophetic. I think what Jacob is saying is, I'm crossing over this brook with confidence now. Because not only has he preserved my life, listen, he's going to preserve my life. And my Esau problem is no longer a problem. Not that it's going to come out. He still had no idea how it was going to shake out. But what he knew is that God was with him. And that his name was no longer Trickster. Now his name was Prince. Who had the favor of God. And because he had the favor of God, he had favor with mankind. He would have favor with his brother. And listen, don't, don't miss this. Don't miss this. When he had the favor of God, he no longer needs to be the manipulator. Because God's favor could do for Jacob what his best thinking and manipulation could never produce. And brothers and sisters, I want to say to you today, that word is for you. You see, in the Hebrew mentality, the idea of blessing was proximity. Um, literally, the way the word was shaped with the, with, the, with the strokes that made a picture, it was a picture of the eye of God right on somebody. You're literally in the face of God. And being in the face of God was the idea of being so close to God that you had his favor. And Jacob said, for the rest of my life, I'm going to live in the face of Almighty God. And as that, I will have favor with God and a blessing, and I will have favor and blessing with my brother and with all men. But I want you to see this last one. 
And we cannot, we must not, we must not end the, the account and not see this because I don't want there to be no surprises or discouragement. And that is the fracturing. Jacob, is time for the fracturing of your flesh. Look at verse 30. So Jacob calls the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the muscle, and it shrank. For the rest of his life, Jacob would walk with a limp. After this whole thing was over, God fades into the background. Jacob turns. Sun's coming up. He takes his first step, and he limps. And Why do you limp? Because it hurts. <laughs> right? It hurts. Right? Every step he takes, he limps. Because it hurts. God will not greatly use a man until he has deeply wounded that man. Why do I need the wounding and the fracturing of my flesh? Because the flesh is strong. And my flesh and Jacob's flesh, and I would assume yours as well, we need a constant, powerful, painful reminder that it is the blessing of God that's more important than anything else. That I don't need to manipulate and I don't need to orchestrate, and I don't need to deceive, and I don't need to trick, and it's not my best ideas and my best efforts. God has prevailed over me. I am Israel. I am no longer that man. And with every step that I take, God kindly reminds me that my life has been changed. Paul, the great apostle, would put it this way. I will therefore rather glory in my weaknesses, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That's why I call this message limping home. All great men walk with that limp. Jacob and the reader finally clear the identity of his assailant. And the rising of the sun in verse 31 marks a new clarity. In Jacob's life. He's still limping. But listen to me. He's walking straighter than he ever has. Solomon would put it this way. In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord. With all your heart. Don't lean. On your best thinking. Jacob. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And that might take a limp. And when you acknowledge him in all your ways, he will do what? Direct your path. The more accurate translation of that, I think it's in the ESV and maybe the New American Standard, is this. And he will make your path straight. You know what limping people need more than anything? Straight paths. And when I trust in God and not Jacob, and when I reject my own best 
manipulation and thinking. And I don't, I don't put any weight on that foolishness anymore. And instead I turn, I look at Esau coming, and I bow to God. I say, God, you're here. And I acknowledge that you're in this situation. And if I die at the hand of my brother, I can't wait to see you face to face. Because I'm nothing without you. You have prevailed over me. And whatever you give from your hand, I will thank you for. Even if it brings me the deepest sorrow and pain I could ever imagine. You're still worth it. Can you say that today? As God looks at you today, and I don't mean this in an accusatory way. Because the cross has changed everything, hasn't it? But if God were to ask you, what is your name? What are you known for? What would your answer be? You know who you are? And maybe more importantly, who you're not? We need to admit who we are. Secondly, we need to always keep pressing in to who God is. Amen? We need to stop being afraid of the silence because we know God's going to show up in that still small voice. And instead, we, we need to start running to the silence and say, okay, God, let me have it. What, what am I missing? What's your better idea? And, I, and I'm going to stay here until I'm convinced of it and then I'm going to walk forward with no fear. Admit who you are. Always press in. And remember where God brought you from. Because all of us are limping home. Fear not the hand that wounds the heart. For from the wound comes the start. You, we are not wise. We are not smart. Oh, how we need a risen heart. Don't fear the wound. Don't run away from the limp. Run towards it. Because that limp is God's mark on your life that he has prevailed. What does that look like for you today? I wonder. What would God speak into your heart? What is that still small voice saying to you? May we heed it. May we obey the gospel. And may we not fear the limp because we're all limping home. Would you stand with me? Our, our musicians will come and we're going to sing our response hymn. Maybe you just need to respond even in a physical way. Just like Jacob limped on that hip out of socket, maybe you need to come and get on your knees before God in a physical way. We got a kneeling bench up here just with your name on it. Father, we love you today. I thank you that we're all limping home. I pray that you would keep us from the snare of the enemy that causes us to fear the limp more than to pursue the blessing. 
Help us to see you for who you are and only then see us for who we are. And may we have your blessing on our life and may we want that more than anything else. May you call us to it, give us confidence to trust you for the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together.